0: Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today at our regular time, 10 a.m., Thursday, March 21st. As always, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. And Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Also this week, an exit interview with FDA Commissioner, for a few more weeks at least, Scott Gottlieb. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Also, we're going to do another Ask Us Anything episode next month. If you have a burning policy question you'd like us to answer, or at least try, you can drop us a line at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Please include your name and where you're from with your question. Okay, Congress is out this week, but there is always news on the health policy beat. First up, surprise medical bills. Those are when you get medical care from a doctor or hospital who you think takes your insurance and then, surprise, they don't. And those surprise bills often reach into the tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars. So everybody in health policy, doctors, hospitals, insurers, Democrats and Republicans, all say they want this fixed and they want it fixed this year. And we're starting to see some proposed solutions. But like everything in healthcare, different players have different ideas about how to fix it. So what are some of the options being mentioned that could address this problem? Well, let's clarify. It's not okay.
1: how to fix it. It's who should pay for fixing it. This, the technical term for this in Washington, is a food fight. <laughs>
2: <laughs> because right now, who's paying for it is the patient, and the patient who is caught unawares. And everybody pretty much agrees that that's not fair. These are people who go to emergency rooms. It's not like they can carefully shop for the exact in-network providers. And every lawmaker basically says we need to do something about this, but it's, you know, should the doctor get paid less? Should the insurer pay more? What should happen? And that's where the fight is.
3: And it sounds like the the two emerging camps are, um, you know, that you would set Rates essentially that that doctors or hospitals would get paid, and that would if be, they're not in network. If they're not in network, right. yeah, and that would maybe be a percent of Medicare. Seems popular, but there are other ways to possibly do it. The other um, has been experimented a little bit in some states. Was um, is arbitration, and so um, Sarah Cliff had a really good story on this in Vox, and it talked about how in Major League Baseball, you know, the the baseball player who wants more money would put down a number, and the um, um, the team that wants to pay him less would put down a number and an arbitrator would pick one of those numbers. So it was an incentive to be realistic on both sides. Because um, you
0: want your number to get picked.
3: Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and that sounds like the um, the approach the insurance companies really like more than um, – or I'm sorry, that's um, no, the that's opposite. opposite. Insurance yes. companies like um, setting rates versus arbitration.
1: Right, and And arbitration. I believe it's Texas that has it. It's just burgeoned. How many people are now waiting to have their cases arbitrated? Yes, we have talked about
3: that too.
0: I think New York just yeah just passed theirs. It's interesting to see them lining up, though, because you know people are lining up behind the one, as Joanne said, that would keep them being paid more. I mean, this is yes, it's a big problem and everybody agrees it needs to be fixed and shouldn't, you know, the patient who, you know, goes in for surgery, make sure that the hospital and doctor are in network and then, you know, gets an anesthesiologist who's not and sends them a multi-thousand dollar bill. Everybody agrees that's not, that shouldn't happen. But The question is how much then does that anesthesiologist get paid? Um, obviously, the anesthesiologist wants more than the networks are allowing or they would be in network. Right. And a, a reminder, some of these bills are tens of th- thousand dollars, but some of them are a couple of hundred dollars.
1: And there are many millions of families in America that that 400 or 500 dollar is It breaks them. They can't afford that. They don't have that much money. I mean, some of these are just eye-popping amounts, but a smaller amount for a, a family with less income and less savings and high medical expenses sometimes
2: it can, can be devastating. And um, Sarah pointed out um, in the Vox piece that New York's arbitration system is helping a lot of people, but it would only cover certain people in certain situations like emergency rooms, and it would not help people who are misled into thinking that a provider or an anesthesiologist was covered by their plan. Been there. <laughs> <laughs> and surprise, it wasn't.
3: Well, I noticed one of the things that um, the insurance industry got behind in their letter was um, requiring doctors or hospitals to tell the patient if they're out of network. And so I wonder if that's a way to put kind of the liability on them rather than on the patient who believed what they said.
1: Right. And and
3: at the end of the day, is this something that
1: because of the you do it, no, you do it, could it fall apart politically? Yes. I mean, there's a lot of money at stake. The, The amount of email all of us are getting shows that there's a lot in the studies and consultants and everything. There's a lot of money at stake. Um, so could it fall apart? Yes. On the other hand, it is also one of the few things that there is bipartisan concern. And there are theoretically ways to split the difference or compromise. This is something that Congress could address.
0: I know. That's what makes it interesting. It, it, right. it, 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 could it also, should be low-hanging fruit, but like no everything. Right? Yeah, exactly. There's no but situation. I mean, I think,
1: there's a, I think there's a bipartisan intent here <laughs> mm-hmm. that we don't usually see around health care. I do think that they would like to fix this. I do think that people just think this is just not, you know, you're unconscious, you can't negotiate.
0: And you have insurance. (laughs) Yeah, we're not even talking about the uninsured.
2: Theoretically, did everything right. They have insurance. They're responsible. They arrive. there expecting something to be covered, and it's not. And it's
1: really hard. We've said this before. It's really, really hard. Even as informed consumers as the four of us are, if you were trying to get that information in a non-emergent situation, like with their surgery, or it's almost impossible.
0: Yeah, I've learned you, you can't just ask. Uh, providers if they take your insurance. Mm -hmm. That is the wrong question. You have to ask if they are participating in your insurance plan. Mm -hmm. So, A word to the wise. All right. Well, next topic. Uh, Congress may be on break, but the presidential race is heating up, at least among the multitudes of Democrats vying for the chance to take on Donald Trump. I thought we would go over where the field is coming down on health care. Last year, it looked like all the major candidates were going to endorse Medicare for All. In fact, all the ones in the Senate signed on to Bernie Sanders' uh, Medicare for All bill. But that's not exactly how it's shaking out, is it?
3: Yeah, not I feel Indiana. like it's it's moderating a good bit. And I think that was kind of predicted by a lot of people that this would happen. But one of the moments that sticks in my mind was um, Beto O'Rourke when he talked about health care. He said Medicare for America. So it's looking it's kind of shaping up like a lot of them um, could possibly support something that's opening Medicare up, um, allowing it as an option, but not taking away private insurance, because that's where people really start to freak out and where some of the moderate members really don't want to go either. Alice, you had a phrase for this, right?
0: (laughs) Yes.
2: So, well, for starters, it's striking how much unity there is in the entire uh, Democratic uh, candidate field, which is growing by the day. It's Gonna be enormous the amount of people, and so basically, yeah, I said that everyone in Hampshire's gonna have to annex Vermont to make room <laughs> for all of them to campaign. You need a lot more countertops for people to stand on. Right. Um, but uh, so everyone is basically saying we want to get total universal coverage, and they're saying that it would be great if if it was a single payer system. Eventually, the disagreements over are over how to get there and how quickly to get there and how much to make some uh, a transition mandatory versus optional. And so you're seeing uh, camps starting to form now that are, you know, the full mandatory single-payer Bernie Sanders, Pramila Jayapal model that would just transition everyone into a single-player plan that covers basically everything and doesn't charge any premiums. So
0: no role for private insurance.
2: Exactly. Except, you know, tiny supplemental here and there. Cosmetic
0: surgery. <laughs> and LASIK.
2: <laughs> and now you're seeing um, Beto O'Rourke and Amy Klobuchar talking talking about a system that would make medicare available to anyone. So it's medicare for all versus medicare for anyone who wants it. And, and if... some
1: populations would be mandatory. I mean the babies would be enrolled in it.
2: Yes. Right. Yes, right. they would be automatically enrolled, but it would be. It, this is this is um, a lot more robust than just the buy-in plans that people are pushing because it would automatically enroll children. It would automatically enroll everybody in Medicaid and everyone on the individual market, and it would be an option to any employer or employee. And it would go from there, and so you could imagine it covering everyone in eventually, and not that long even. Right. So. It's, a, it's
1: a Medicare for mm-hmm. a lot of people as long as they want to be, unless we say they have to. Be. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs)
2: But it would charge premiums. (laughs) One one big difference is that it would charge premiums. But the Medicare for all bills in the House and Senate have absolutely no pay for, which we've discussed before. Um, But this bill would be paid for by those premiums and by they outline specific um, taxes on the wealthy and on cigarettes and various other things. And
1: a reminder that today's Medicare, the current Medicare for people over 65 and certain disabled populations, there are premiums. Low-income people are subsidized. There's there's all sorts of ways in which... And there are copays. I mean, enormous yes. copays. Actually,
0: in
4: there
1: are Medicare. copays, they're deductibles. It is not free yeah. for the low-income people or the dual eligibles and variants. I mean, people get Medicaid and Medicare, various things. What's, and oh, the Medicare
2: for America plan would cap out-of-pocket costs, so that's important.
0: So, yeah, I mean, what's interesting to me about how this is shaking out is that. You know, we started in when I think I guess it was Kamala Harris sort of famously said, "Well, let nobody likes their private insurance, so let's just get rid of private insurance." Um, but I think everybody who sort of lived through not just the Affordable Care Act but the failed President Bill Clinton health plan realized that that one of the sticky points is you don't want to take things, you don't want too much disruption. That was sort of the the theme of the ACA. It's like let's help the people who need it, but not not disrupt the people who who are happy with what they have. Hence, President Obama's. Not quite right, but at least the idea of if you like it, you can keep it. And I think I'm interested in the fact that, you know, they all started out saying Medicare for all, single payer, we're going to move there. And then There's a big chunk of the of these very liberal Democrats who are now sort of moving back away of like, yeah, I think the people who are happy with what they have, we shouldn't make them angry. Um, Well, that's an easy like
3: Republican talking point Mm -hmm. too against Medicare for all is, you know, you're going to lose the insurance that you really like. And so I think by doing something more in the middle, they're kind of. Hoping to close that ability to come after them on, and it's private. it's pretty
2: wild that the Medicare for America plan would be considered in the middle. I mean, just right. a few years ago, <laughs> it would just be so six That's months ago, <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't get a the left. Yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, I I think people are you know, even if they think their current plan is way too expensive and doesn't cover enough, it they know what it is versus this unknown, and even if you tell people, oh, it'll cover everything and you'll have no premiums and it'll be amazing, it's unknown. It's unknown territory, so that that's scary for people, and you see that in polling. Well, today, but I
1: think this is still way, way in flux. I mean, clearly, we are having a different conversation about universal coverage and the role of Medicare than we would have had a year ago. It has changed fast. Since 2016, Bernie Sanders. However, it changes every week, and or every other week or something like that. And I don't think we really know where people are going to come down yet. And there is a wing of the Democratic Party who at least what they're saying in public, and you know, we don't know how that will evolve, they want Medicare for all, In in, in the the Bernie Sanders model, a new system that they're calling Medicare, repeat that it's not the current Medicare system. They want it in two years. They want it free. They want it to cover everything, including long-term care. And um, efficiency and wiping out greed and profit will pay for it. So um, there are people who at this point are – that's the vision and that's pretty
0: litmus testy in
1: the conversation right now but again things change
0: well so to the point that this is that this entire sort of debate has moved significantly to the left i mean yeah they're pulling it back a little bit we had a study from a big health consulting firm this week suggesting that hospital finances would take a significant hint from even some of the more seemingly incremental proposals but that um, was paid for by the hospital industry i'm th- th- <laughs> th- let me finish the question the question is <laughs> it seems very early for the of this to be calling out the fire engines. Um, I feel like this is a mark of how big this debate could become from the point of view of people who would be impacted, meaning stakeholders, meaning healthcare providers.
2: And you're seeing, so the the um, progressive groups that are just, you know, Medicare for all are bust, one of their main talking points is, look, the industry is going to fight even the most tiny, incremental, let's expand Medicare to only cover 50 to 65 people uh, plans, so why not go for the most... You know, if they're going to fight anything, let's go for the most bold, you know, generous proposal. So that that's a talking point you're going to hear. And this will play right into that.
1: So if anyone is um, at the Kennedy School listening to this, you don't have to come to my lecture in two weeks because <laughs> I'm going to say it in 10 seconds. I mean, I think something that's gone on is the fight to stop repeal was not by the traditional K Street groups. It was not by the traditional players. It was not... The repeal was not... They
0: tried, just no one listened to them. (laughs) They weren't the players. They weren't
1: the deciders. Mm -hmm. Um, And they are prepared now, and they're united now. I mean, pretty much all the major industry sectors are united to stop Medicare for all before it starts and all its variants, and we're seeing them in an organized, sustained, you know, partnership for this and partnership for that, and you know, this study and that study. They're very intent on owning this and getting out ahead of it. They're divided on drug costs. They're divided on surprise bills. They're united. Um, on this, so that we're seeing the, and this is the coalition basically that killed Clinton Care, and in the in the, the ninety two to ninety four, um, they were sort of bought into the process under Obamacare, and they have no intention of being brought into Medicare for all. <laughs> and,
0: and thank and, you, that was exactly the point I was <laughs> trying to make. They
2: obviously have uh, an interest and a stake at this, and and are not you know sort of an impartial uh, expert you know force weighing in. But to be fair, they are correctly pointing out. That that even these plans that are being sold as less disruptive and optional would still have a huge huge impact on the healthcare sector and somebody's going to have to pay it's a
0: more. fifth of the economy that's a <laughs> yes.
2: lot of people's salaries mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so even if you change you know one big chunk several millions of people's health insurance to, you know, reimburse doctors at Medicare rates. Right? So that still has a huge impact. Hospitals say they'll take a hit. We'll see what happens.
1: Yeah. Much- <laughs> and remember what we haven't been hearing recently. But Republicans for years have been talking about moving Medicare in the opposite direction, raising the eligibility age to 67 or 70 or whatever. And we haven't heard that recently. I mean, it may come back.
0: And privatizing it. Well, which we also have, although it's it's sort of privatizing itself. But that's slowly a, and slowly. more voluntarily, yeah. though,
1: Medicare advantage is uh, it's not the same thing that
0: the Paul Ryan was talking about, mm-hmm. but he's gone. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Um, Also this week, the Trump administration is devoting a lot of attention to pushing its policy to try to eliminate HIV in the next decade. At least here in the U.S., the president's budget would actually take money away from international AIDS efforts. Um, So how would the administration actually try to do this and how likely is it to be successful?
3: Well, it sounds like they're really... Pushing um, for prevention, so there's a pill um, that if you're at high risk of prep, prep um, if you're at high risk of contracting HIV, if you just take this daily, um, your chance of getting it disappears. Um, and you know the problem is there are these really hard to reach communities that they're not getting the medication and they're not even getting tested. So it would be testing and prep would be their a, a lot of their focus. But I thought the New York Times did a really good job of going to um, was it Mississippi, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And, um, and sort of talking to providers. Some people who they treat have to drive four hours to go see them. I don't know that you can just say, like, well, we're going to do more testing and we're going to get the medication out there. But on the other hand, we want to cut Medicaid and kind of get rid of the providers who are taking care of this population um, and make it even harder for them to, to get the care that they need. It's testing. PrEP and treatment for those people. There are, I mean,
1: there are people who are out there. If you're on treatment and you stick to your medication and you can afford your medication, you take it correctly, you know, you're not going to transmit it So, or the risk was way, way, way down. So that's the other missing piece. I mean, the public health strategies, we sort of know what they are. We have tools that we did not have. Earlier in the epidemic, obviously, I know, um, it's,
0: it, the idea that you know they say this and that it, in theory it is possible, yes, to yeah. getting there, Eradicate there in the, in, you HIV. know, because
1: as as the Times article, a really good piece from Mississippi and San Francisco, Miss Rural Mississippi is not <laughs> San Francisco. So things that we do know, we do have the tools, and this is not impossible. Maybe not to eliminate AIDS by twenty thirty, but to really make a big dent. Yeah, it, it is possible if if we decide to put in the resources and follow through and and really work at it. I mean, the public health strategies are there. You know, we don't know how much you have to really work at it in these hard-to-reach areas because after 40 years, they're still hard to reach.
2: The administration has been saying that they're going to focus on where the states and counties where most of the new infections are occurring and they were saying that this is mostly occurring in the South and like Anna said, it's it's not an accident that this is where states have not expanded Medicaid. Millions of people are uninsured. <laughs> um, and and yeah, so this is, this is a hard-to-reach population, so even if they got tested and um, wanted to begin treatment affording that without um, coverage is very well, challenging. the Ryan White.
1: I mean, you don't have to have Medicaid. There are other. Right. I mean, it's an issue. Affordability is an issue, but mm-hmm. it's not the only issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's cultural issues, there's stigma issues, mm-hmm. there's health literacy understanding issues, there's fear of the disease and not understanding it can be treated issues. There's a whole lot of layers and layers of issues. But you know, as someone who covered this in the early years, the fact that we take for granted the tools we have. You know, Julie and I were kids when it started, but I mean, we both knew people who died and. Uh, it's really different. I mean, it, yeah, it, it we could actually we could wipe out AIDS if we really worked at it. And, oh. you, and of course, as Julie noted, it's a U.S. program. I mean, WHO is committed to wiping out AIDS across the globe. Um, this program that Trump embraced, you know, with the enthusiasm of of, of HIV activist groups and, and public health people, but it is it's only in the United States,
3: right? So the the I think the the budget proposal was actually to cut funding yes. for global AIDS. Help and you know people in the U.S. don't always just stay in the U.S. Right, um, so right. That but it the is, cutting far, it is still yeah. a communicable disease. Yes. Right, <laughs>
1: and cutting but cutting global AIDS funds is all, they're cutting global everything funds. So right, uh,
0: right. and the same true. thing you know with yeah. cutting Medicaid, a lot of age groups have. Sent me emails. I mean, they are concerned that on the you know that you can't give with one hand and take away yes. with the other and expect it all to work. And you know, as the the uh, HHS secretary Azar pointed out when he was asked about this, and I'm sure he will be again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a tough budget year for the the Trump administration. There are still these spending caps in place that will go into effect if something isn't changed. Um, and that they tried. You know, they there was a there was a big cut to the HHS budget. So any place that they they beefed up, they cut mm-hmm. somewhere else so
1: i think it will right be- and they did put money into it it was not just a slogan i mean when we first heard the state of the union that you know Trump was mm-hmm. going to do this until we saw the budget we weren't really sure what it meant and that they are putting money into it
0: you know we'll see how this rolls out all right that is our news for the week we're going to play the interview i did with scott gottlieb on wednesday and then we'll be back with our extra credits <laughs> It is my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, Commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, at least for a few more weeks. You are our first two-time guest, so thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. You have been active in literally every corner of what FDA oversees, from food safety to boosting generic drug approvals to trying to curb teen use of tobacco products. I know you're not allowed to look for a job while you're still on the government payroll, but when you leave, what do you most want to pursue, and what do you want your successor here to pursue at the agency?
4: Well, I think, you know, I'm still going to be active in policy issues. I'm still going to try to weigh in um, where I think it's helpful. But, you know, I think I'm going to weigh in differently. I think I'm going to try to find ways that I could um, continue to think of new ideas that I can help advance that I think are constructive um, and can help inform the dialogue and give people new ways of thinking about trying to solve some of these challenges. With respect to um, Dr. Sharpless and how he thinks about the mission, I don't want to prejudge um but you're leaving um, some things undone. Yeah, we're leaving some things undone. And, and I think that there's a lot of things that are in process that are going to roll out in the next several months, policies, things, implementation of the Support Act, for example. You know, my impression of Dr. Sharpless, he's extremely public health-minded. He understands the agency. I think he has a wonderful ethic with respect to the mission of this agency. I think a lot of his goals are going to be very consistent with the agency's goals.
0: Is there one particular piece of what FDA does that you feel like needs to be more front and center than the rest?
4: One of the things... That I'm proud of having done here is I feel that I, we worked across all the parts of the agency. I mean, this is an enormous agency. The scope of this agency is very broad. It impacts a big swath of the economy. People say 20 to 25 percent of the economy is regulated by FDA, but it also impacts public health issues that are very pertinent to people's lives in multiple spheres, whether it's food regulation, cosmetics, dietary supplements, homeopathy. You know, I think one of the things that we did was look across the entire agency and look for places where there were either outdated approaches to how the agency was approaching certain challenges or the challenges had grown in a way where we needed to change our overall orientation, whether it was trying to rethink how we regulate homeopathy products, trying to rethink and modernize our approach to dietary supplements. We recently put out a statement that I won't be here to f- see through about trying to change our orientation to cosmetics. We looked at trying to reframe our approach to tobacco products, regulation of tobacco products, putting nicotine at the center of our regulatory efforts. So I think we tried to fundamentally rethink how we addressed important areas of public health where the agency was facing different challenges because of how things have gotten more complex. We were seeing homeopathy products that were creating a lot of new risks.
0: In 2016, almost all of the former FDA commissioners got together on a stage and said they thought that the FDA should be an independent agency, independent of HHS, reporting directly to the president. I know you're you're unlikely to say that now, but having run the agency, do you think that they have a point?
4: Well, I think part of what they're arguing is that the complexity of the mission of the agency and the scope of what the agency does, reporting through multiple chains can sometimes impede the ability of the agency to advance advanced policies quickly. Uh, I don't think making the agency an independent agency is the only way to address some of those challenges. Um, But I do think that there's some underlying truth to the fact that the scope of this agency has grown um, significantly over time. That's the biggest difference in terms of my various stints at the agency. I was here in 2003, came back in 2005, and back now I came back in 2017. I think what was most different about the agency was just the sheer scope of the regulatory mission had gotten um, so much more complex and so much larger. But I don't think that uh, making an independent agency is the only way to address that, that underlying issue. And I still think that this agency is, uh, you know, it is manageable. And I think that the various pieces of its public health mission, there's a strong public health rationale why you'd want to keep these parts together.
0: One tobacco question: um, We've talked a lot on the podcast about Juul and teen use of non-combustible tobacco products. Can you explain, in very lay terms, the balance you're trying to strike in terms of regulation of e-cigarettes?
4: Well, we think nicotine uh, exists on a continuum of risk, with combustible products being the riskiest form of nicotine delivery, and medicinal products being the least risky. The medicinal ele- products, people like trying to quit gum smoking, patches, oh. right? You know, the electronic nicotine delivery systems, like e-cigarettes, existing somewhere in the middle. They're not safe. They have certain risks associated with them, but we believe they're less harmful than combustible tobacco products. And so we want to make these products, we want to put these products through an appropriate series of regulatory gates to fully understand their risks and their potential benefits to make them available to currently addicted adult smokers to help them transition off of combustible cigarettes. Our broader vision was to regulate nicotine in combustible cigarettes to remove the nicotine to more rapidly migrate adults who still want to get access to nicotine off of combustible tobacco onto these other products. That was the vision we laid out in the summer of 2017. Um, I think what's changed our overall approach was really shocking data we received on August 31st of 2018. I remember the day, I remember the moment when I saw the data from the 2018 National Youth Tobacco Survey, which surveys children about their tobacco use, that showed a shocking rise in the use of e-cigarettes by kids. That forced us to reevaluate that overall approach. I think the, the fundamental vision still holds, but how much we're going to allow the e-cigarettes to remain on the market in an unencumbered fashion has to change relative to the risk that's being created by this huge pool of kids becoming addicted to nicotine through these same products.
0: If this rate doesn't go down, is the FDA prepared to ban some of these ways of delivering nicotine?
4: Well, I think what the FDA is prepared to do next, if the 2019 National Youth Tobacco Survey, which we're currently in the field with right now, and we'll have the results sometime in July or August, shows another substantial rise, I think what the FDA is prepared to do is look at banning the pod-based, the cartridge-based products as a category, um, either as an entire category or the flavored pod-based products, because those are the ones that the kids are abusing. And if you look at the letter that I got from the Altria CEO, is a 15-page letter. The CEO sent me a letter saying, we believe pod-based products are driving the youth use, and we believe in particular it's the flavored products. I agree with him. Um, we, we, we formed the same analysis, and in fact, at the time, Altria took the step of removing their pod-based products from the market, and they committed to not introducing a flavored product on the market other than mint, menthol and tobacco until they had a PMTA, or until, in their words, the youth addiction crisis—I forgot their exact phrasing—had otherwise abated. It hasn't debated, um, and so if we need to see another sharp rise, that would be the next regulatory step that we would take.
0: Well, that's as much time as I have. Scott Gottlieb, thank you very much. Thank you for your service, and I'm sure we will see you again in whatever role you take next. Thanks for having me. Okay, it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Joanne, why don't you go first this week? Well, um, NBC News
1: had a really good piece on surprise medical bills. As we just talked about it, it's not the first time anyone's reported on it. But it was a really good piece because it added uh, how aggressive some of the creditor agencies are in putting liens on people's houses and garnishing their wages, so it's a pretty aggressive... Recruitment strategy for something that everybody in this country pretty much believes is not a very fair thing in the first place. And the piece also really explained it, both the policy and the legislative fixes, as well as the patient and consumer perspective. So I thought it was a good piece for having it all in one place.
2: Alice? I chose a piece uh, by Kaiser Health News uh, uh, that ran in the New York Times that focused on family caregivers who are um, the millions of people across the country who are um, caring at home for a loved one with a disability or a degenerative disease. And all of these states are moving uh, forward with uh, bills that would give them uh, tax credits. Um, some states are proposing 3000 a year, 5000 a year to help them afford the cost of, of care. Um, and it's just wildly expensive to care for a loved one, um, I guess less than putting someone in an institution. And also, there's other factors at play there. Um, And I thought it was interesting. And I think that uh, this is a big piece of why groups lobbied so heavily for long term care to be included in these Medicare for all proposals, um, which would take the burden off of theoretically off of family members and enable them to go back into the workforce. Um, So all, all of that's going on. I did on. my
0: first big long-term care story in 1987, mm. and I remember thinking, oh, we're going to take care of this by the time I need long-term care. And, <laughs> yeah, now I'm not so sure.
1: It's really <laughs> expensive. It's really and yeah. really the reason yeah. we haven't solved it is it's really, really expensive. expensive.
3: <laughs> Anna? Um, mine was in STAT. It's by Matthew Harper, um, The Astounding 19-Year Journey to See Change for Heart Patients. I found this really interesting um, because it follows kind of basically there used to be, well, instead can be, but open heart surgery if you have heart issues. And there was an invention that was a heart valve that can basically be um, put in through a catheter. So you don't have to be. Yeah, exactly. So you don't have to be ripped open. Um, But it took almost two decades to catch on. And what I Thought was interesting about this is you see a lot of saviors coming to the healthcare industry of late from Silicon Valley, particularly like the Apple Watch, or um, I've, I'm thinking of these like apps for contraception that don't actually work all that well. <laughs> we'll um,
0: talk about that also,
3: <laughs> So um, So, you know, people g- get behind these like big grand ideas and want it to work really fast and adopt it and have wellness programs, and they, you know, real medical breakthroughs can take time.
0: Absolutely. Well, my extra, speaking about tech and healthcare, my extra credit this week is the, is from Fortune magazine uh, by Kaiser Health News' Fred Schulte and Fortune's Erica Fry. It's called Death by a Thousand Clicks, where electronic health records went wrong. And it is an exhaustive investigation into the ways electronic health records should be improving healthcare, but aren't always, including tests that are ordered but don't get done, faulty medication lists, and the ease with which the wrong patient's information can get copied into a non- other patients' medical files. And most of this move to electronic health records has come at taxpayers' expense. As the authors put it, quote, rather than an electronic ecosystem of information, the nation's thousands of EHRs largely remain a sprawling, disconnected patchwork. So there's always more to see. That is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions for our Ask Us Anything. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Rovner. At Anna Edney. At Alice Olstein. At Joanne Cannon. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.